This podcast is a production of Vermont Law School's Environmental Law Center. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Hot House Earth. Today on the show, we're debuting our new three-part miniseries, Elevate, celebrating women in environmental law and policy. I'm your host, Jeannie Oliver, and I'm thrilled to introduce you to my new series co-host, Veronica Ancona. Veronica is a third-year law and master's student here at Vermont Law School. She's been part of the Hot House Earth production team for over a year now, and she helped develop the idea for this mini-series. Hi, everyone. I'm Veronica Ancono, and I'm so excited to be a part of this project. You know, Jeannie, when I was growing up in central New York, I knew zero women attorneys or judges, let alone any that look like me. And the few that I knew were all white cisgender men. So as I'm beginning my professional career as a third-generation Asian-American and a first-generation law student, I see that where I'm traditionally not supposed to be are exactly the places I need to be. And one of the ways I could explore that place for myself is with this podcast. And Veronica, for me, it was really interesting to learn about your experience growing up in New York and your perspective on gender equity in the legal profession, because It's so different to my own experience coming out of law school in New Zealand at a time when all of the most powerful positions in New Zealand were occupied by women. And so against this backdrop, I had absolutely no reason to believe that being a woman would hold me back in any way at all in my career. And so talking to you about our contrasting experiences and our perspectives on gender equity, it really inspired us to pursue this mini-series together. With this mini-series, we really wanted to take a closer look at the status of women in the legal profession and environmental law and policy more particularly. The environment and the law and policy regulating it affects everyone. When it comes to climate change, we know from organizations like the UN and the International Panel for Climate Change that women are disproportionately affected. So for environmental law, policy, and climate change strategies to be relevant and effective, we need greater diversity at the table. And while research shows that women have made a really big impact in environmental nonprofits, women remain significantly underrepresented in the legal profession more generally at just 38%. And Veronica, this statistic really surprised me because as you'll know from being at law school, Um, about 50% of the law school class at the moment are women. Um, The statistics show that women are especially lagging in private practice and especially in leadership positions with just 20% of partners being women. We also know that women on average earn about 20% less than their male counterparts. And in the judiciary where we've had some extremely notable women judges such as the late Justice Ginsburg, only about one third of judges are women. By elevating diversity, we elevate the power of the law. We can find real solutions that work for local communities and populations that are the most impacted by these issues. Because it is our responsibility. It's our responsibility to be better. It's our responsibility to elevate each other and bring each other up the ladder. This series, Celebrating and Elevating Women in Environmental Law and Policy, is just a small part of this bigger conversation but it's an important starting place. Over the next few months, we'll be sharing our conversations with women about their experiences in shaping environmental and social change through the power of the law and some of the challenges that they've faced along the way. 
our goal is to celebrate the perseverance, hard work, and complexities of women in environmental law and policy and provide inspiration to women to claim their seat at the table. We are kicking off this series with a true trailblazer and inspiration. Our first guest began her journey in environmental law in the 1970s, the decade that gave rise to the Environmental Protection Agency and broad national environmental policy in the U.S. It was also a time when women comprised just 4% of the entire population of attorneys in the U.S. In fact, our guest was one of just four women in her graduating year at law school. But nevertheless, she went on to lead an impressive career as an environmental advocate and hasn't given up the fight since. We are absolutely delighted to introduce you all to Karen Sheldon. Karen's accomplishments are vast and derive from her experience in private practice, nonprofit advocacy organizations, and academia. Just to name a few of her accomplishments, she was a member of Nader's Raiders in the 1970s. She was an associate and partner in two law firms in Washington, D.C., representing clients in environmental litigation. She's been an attorney for the Sierra Club Legal Defense Fund, now known as Earth Justice. She was the president of the Wilderness Society, and she was also the president of Western Resources Advocates. She was even an associate dean and director of the Environmental Law Center here at Vermont Law School and is currently a senior fellow at the Colorado School of Law and the president of Four Echo Strategies. Karen, welcome to our show. We are so honored to have you with us. Thank you for joining us. Excellent. Thank you. We would like to begin by asking you, what inspired you to pursue a career in environmental law? The way I grew up. I was uh, fortunate to uh, be the child of some adventurous parents who both grew up in Massachusetts. And then after the Second World War, they moved uh, from Massachusetts all the way to Washington State. So my childhood was spent uh, outdoors, largely. Uh, We had uh, little cabins on lakes. We did a lot of hiking and camping and rolling around uh, in the woods. Uh, And that experience of the wild and of uh, the natural world really uh, is at the core of of who I am. And it explains a lot of of who I am and what I uh, wanted to do and be. And as I uh, grew older and when I was in college, it was clear to me that we were in an uh, era, era of turmoil. There's a lot of social change happening at that point. The Vietnam War was still raging. We were experiencing the civil rights movement. And I saw that while protest is very important and needs to happen, that the use of law, uh, particularly the use of law in the courtroom, was the way to speak for people who could not speak for themselves, to represent interests that had no voice, and to hopefully balance uh, the power and the uh, the access to uh, decisions and authority. And so uh, it appeared to me that the law was the way that I could uh, work to protect the things that I cared most about uh, and to represent people who also cared about those things and that it was going to be the use of law uh, and the, uh, the, way, the way to balance that, that social inequity. And uh, so uh, I went to an all-women's college, 
And then uh, following that, I ended up in law school, a class of 175 uh, in the first year with all of four women in the class, which wow. was a, uh, quite, quite a difference. What was it like being just one of four women in your year at law school? It was challenging. Uh, it was difficult. Um, I have to confess that I did not find law school uh, all that uh, uh, intellectually stimulating. I found it, uh, uh, sometimes to be somewhat anti-intellectual, in fact. Um, it was a time that uh, fortunately changed quite quickly. By the time I was a third-year student, about a third of the incoming class uh, were women. And if you look back on that short period, uh, the uh, demographics of law school changed uh, markedly within a very short period of time. And that really did help because uh, as one of four in the first year, it was still okay to pick on us. It was still okay to have ladies day. There was, there was no women's uh, bathroom in the law school. We shared it with the secretaries. Uh, you know, unfortunately, most women who went to law school at that time have these stories. One of the things that I think is really important, however, is to get beyond them and not to, to uh, have that, as you suggest in the, uh, the notes that you sent, be our narrative uh, because we have been successful and the profession has changed markedly. There are still areas, uh, less environmental law, but more uh, perhaps the, uh, uh, the, the large uh, private law firms that are still male dominated at the top, the partners and so on and so forth. But uh, uh, across the board, I think women have made remarkable progress uh, in the law uh, since I graduated from law school. What do you think contributed to this rapid increase in the number of women attending law school and just greater gender equality in the legal profession? Women began to realize that uh, they needed to put themselves into places where they had uh, skills and training uh, to uh, make a difference, uh, to uh, work on the social issues that were all around them. Uh, mm -hmm. Civil rights, as I mentioned, uh, issues relating to the Vietnam War, issues relating to the environment, and then uh, the other kinds of social issues, uh, uh, child welfare, uh, social policies across the board. And those things, I think, have appealed to women uh, forever. And it was a time to move from being a volunteer or from using your degree, your college degree in another way to actually having the background and training that law provides. I know of no other discipline, frankly, that uh, gives people, equips people better to address conflict, to help solve social problems, to think critically about what's going on and to provide answers, and then to be helpful. Uh, no one said it was easy to do. Uh, and, uh, and yet, uh, that's another thing I think that characterizes women. There's a lot of grit and, um, and perseverance. So Karen, I was reading a law review article about women in the legal profession challenging sex discrimination in the workplace in the 1970s. It sounds like this was a decade of empowerment and challenging the status quo. 
But even so, I imagine it was difficult for women starting their legal careers in the 1970s when men still held most of the leadership positions. When I think about this, the last thing I want to do from my incredible place of privilege, I I have had wonderful opportunities. I uh, am white. Um, I grew up at an incredible time in, in, our, in our history. I had a family that supported me. I was able to go to law school. And so to some extent, when I think about my challenges, they pale uh, in comparison to the challenges that, that other people face uh, here and, and around the world. And I don't you know, ever want to assume that, oh, poor me. Um, but I think that, uh, that as women, uh, we have some uh, understanding and perspective that we can bring to the issues of equity, inclusion, and, and justice uh, as we uh, try to incorporate those. And where we are in the law at present doing a lot of questioning about not only gender issues, but race issues in a, in a very large way. And so it's, it's part of the conversation, but the, uh, the equality has to extend across all people uh, and all communities. And uh, we're, uh, uh, we are challenged as lawyers mm-hmm. to address that because so much of, um, as we now realize, so much of what we have to deal with is structural and built into our systems. And so harder in some ways to change than, than other things. Do you see these structural inequities at play in the environmental profession? For example, from your perspective, is the profession still male-dominated? Uh, it is still largely male um, because uh, law, uh, at the time that environmental law came along, was largely male, and it has changed. But we still uh, have that uh, that work to do across the board. When I first started to practice, I was very often the only woman in the courtroom or the hearing room uh, or the meeting room. And that has changed. Uh, There are many, many more women in practice now than there were. But the, the fact remains that there are still attitudes about us. Uh, There is still always the, uh, and I feel this even today, the challenge to be better than our male counterparts so that we get credit for just being good. Uh, I when talking to my own daughter who has the same experience of being in a meeting and you say something and there's no response and three people later, the man will say something and there will be, oh, Frank, what a, what a good idea. <laughs> that continues to happen. This is not over. It has changed markedly. Uh, and for that, I am, I'm glad. And, I, uh, and it, it will continue um, to change. But it doesn't mean that we ever have to uh, sort of assume that everything has, has gone away. And we're now talking about how we intersect uh, law with other uh, issues so that uh, what we do from a legal standpoint is not so divided up. It really, it embraces uh, people and communities in all places. Early environmental law divided the environment up into distinct media, 
Clean Air Act, you had the Clean Water Act, you had statutes that related to land, statutes that related to toxic substances, and we set these national standards, one size fits all, regardless of the communities where uh, there was pollution, regardless of the sensitivities of the uh, people involved, um, their resources or lack thereof. And we have now realized that that uh, is uh, really uh, has some uh, significant problems with it, uh, that law, like everything else, needs to be like an ecosystem, things connected, um, everything connected to everything else. And we need to integrate into our policy and our law going forward, a recognition of that. We need to reform our environmental organizations um, to reflect uh, the communities that we serve. Karen, how did you overcome some of these structural challenges to achieve a successful career in environmental law? Well, first I would say that part of it was I was in the right place at the right time. Uh, I was at a place when the society, as I've said, was changing, and environmental law was just beginning. Uh, Environmental law was a response to citizen concern about what was happening around them and pollution problems that were bigger than little local community efforts. Uh, We had the uh, Santa Barbara oil spill. We had the uh, burning of the Cuyahoga River. Uh, Lake Erie was declared dead. And the public really rose up and put a lot of pressure on the Congress to enact national environmental legislation with good national policy. And so when when this happened, uh, pursuant to efforts by a bipartisan Congress, believe it or not, (laughs) there was law to work with. And there was law to apply. And there was law for people like me to use. And so being at at that place and at that time was really an opportunity. There were opportunities presented that hadn't existed before. And I I don't know. I think in terms of uh, success, uh, this is very hard work. Always has been. Still is. And it uh, takes a, a willingness to do that, uh, a willingness to, uh, to keep at it, um, perhaps a, a, a faith or a belief that there's always a way, there is always a solution to a problem, and the law provides some ways of, of uh, arriving at those solutions uh, in, a, in a creative way. But, you know, we don't ever do this alone either. Um, And I have been fortunate to have wonderful colleagues. Um, In my private practice at the Wilderness Society, at Earth Justice, at Vermont Law School, uh, this is a a community. It's a circle which fortunately has never been broken. It just expands. Karen, you've made a number of pivots in your career from environmental litigation in private practice to environmental advocacy at big environmental nonprofits to teaching natural resources law in an academic setting. Can you tell us a little bit about those roles and how you made some of your career decisions? The first job out of law school with, uh, was uh, with Ralph Nader. And I was a um, uh, a Nader's Raider, a member of the original Public Interest Research Group, and I did environmental work there. 
uh, looking mostly at urban environmental health issues, uh, in particular, lead paint poisoning in uh, housing projects in Baltimore, low-income uh, housing projects and communities of color, but uh, an array of uh, environmental justice related issues uh, for Ralph. And his idea was that you would work for him for a year and then go out into the society and carry forth uh, these efforts to, uh, to reform the law when it needed to be reformed and to create it uh, when it needed to be created. And I went from there to Berlin, Roisman and Kessler which was a client-funded uh, environmental law firm. And I, what I mean is that uh, unlike uh, uh, Wilderness Society or Earth Justice, it, uh, uh, the legal services are paid for by clients and we tried to keep our fees very low. And we did a lot of nuclear power plant licensing uh, proceedings. And I represented citizen organizations in those proceedings as people endeavored to fight the construction and operation of nuclear power plants, including Vermont Yankee mm-hmm. uh, in, in Vermont uh, and the Seabrook nuclear power plant in New Hampshire. And uh, I was a Westerner and I loved that work. I thought it was very important, but it wasn't what I, was, I felt I was called to do. And I was there for about a decade And during that time, I got to know uh, people at uh, Earth Justice, what was the Sierra Club Legal Defense Fund at that point. And uh, the executive director invited me to uh, establish the Washington, D.C. office of that organization. And I did that with a a colleague and friend named Rick Middleton, who subsequently went on to found the Southern Environmental Law Center, which is going strong throughout the Southeast. And uh, I was there for a year and something um, and, then, and really did want to get back to the West. Uh, and at that point, uh, had uh, two little kids, uh, wanted them to grow up in the West. And the opportunity arose to join the Denver office of the Legal Defense Fund. So we moved uh, to Denver and lived in Boulder and I uh, worked there uh, for another decade. Um, and that uh, docket of cases, because it was full litigation docket, was just exactly what I wanted to do. There was a lot of wildlife work, uh, public lands protection work, uh, national forest efforts, mining, uh, oil and gas litigation, uh, water, and Western water law, uh, and I got to represent wild places and wild things, including wolves and bears and, uh, uh, and so on. And it was, it was terrific. And through all that time, from, from the time that we moved to uh, Colorado and I was working at the Legal Defense Fund, uh, I was also teaching as an ad, adjunct. I taught in Denver and I taught in uh, Colorado. Um, I took a leave of absence and taught for a whole year at the University of Oregon. Uh, and because I, I wanted to teach, and I also thought that maybe at some point I'd want to do that uh, for the long term. And along about that time, a professor at Vermont Law School named Celia Campbell Moan uh, called me on the phone and said, Oh, you know, uh, we're looking for uh, another member of the environmental faculty. Would you be interested? 
And I thought, nah, <laughs> I don't want to go all the way up there into the North Woods. Um, and she said, well, why don't you come up and talk to us and see you know, what you think? So I did. And uh, uh, one lesson I've learned is always talk, always go you know, and meet people and talk. I was so impressed uh, by the program and the people there and the students that I met. And uh, I, I thought, why not? Um, this is a good time for the family. I had a, a, a son who was about to be a freshman in high school in a big suburban um, high school. Uh, moving to Vermont seemed like a good idea. 94 to 2007 was a <laughs> wonderful idea. So how did you know when and how to pivot your career? That's a tough one, particularly if things are going well. If things are going awfully, uh, you know, then it's, it's clear that it's time for a change. Um, I have found over the years that if that uh, opportunities come in, if they uh, really are appealing, it's important to listen, always to listen, um, and uh, to ask yourself, uh, is this going to help me be a better lawyer, help me make more of a difference, help me in ways that, uh, that I haven't been able to, um, to do in the time. Um, I also found that when I get impatient with something, and I got real impatient with fundraising at Western Resource Advocates and realized that it might be time for a change there, that uh, that's a good sign. You don't want to overstay uh, at a place. Uh, I, I found that it was also time for me in Vermont to be back in the West again. Uh, my parents were aging. My kids were grown and they were out here. Uh, and so uh, it, um, the, the personal things were on the list as well in terms of changing and coming back out uh, and becoming the uh, president of Western Resource Advocates. Karen, in the U.S., women live in an ecosystem that seems to just be steeped in self-consciousness, like you mentioned earlier. What advice do you have for women on the day-to-day -day level on how they can allow themselves to feel like they actually belong in this workplace and to not, and how to deal with imposter syndrome moving forward. We overcome that, oh geez, I don't belong here, by doing, by being there, by accepting the really tough assignments uh, and uh, continuing to challenge ourselves, by finding uh, good, colleagues and, and mentors and supporters, and they are both women and men. Uh, and in, in the environmental law field, uh, because of who we are working with and the reasons that we are working, uh, it is far less of a, of a problem than it is in, still in, in the normal private practice. Uh, and so to the extent that we can help women across in all of the aspects of practice, I think that it's important uh, to do. But uh, I think we're fortunate in environmental law. And I think they, uh, where, you're, where you're headed uh, in terms of energy, you are now more at a leading edge. 
uh, in that aspect uh, of the law than the, the, the whole rest of sort of pollution control and certainly natural resources law. So for you, uh, these questions are, are even more uh, immediate at, at this point in time. And uh, I think it's, uh, it's showing up and uh, making the assumption and telling yourself you belong there and then displaying that you do in fact belong there by the contribution that you make. And I have no doubt that you, you will do it. Uh, no doubt at all. Karen, thank you so much for sharing these really inspiring insights with us today. We have just one last question for you, and that is, what gives you hope that we can meet the environmental challenges of the 21st century? We're facing another challenging time. Uh, uh, new, new lawyers will have work to do. Uh, this is work that needs you uh, as uh, environmental lawyers and energy lawyers and so on. And we're going to have to uh, undo a lot of damage that's been done. Um, we're going to have to figure out. Uh, so far, we're holding our own with the with the uh, with the courts um, because the courts have been so responsive on environmental law. That's one reason that we have a body of environmental laws that the the judges in the early days uh, saw that it was Im important and it expressed important national policies and put flesh on the bones of statutes like the National Environmental Policy Act. So that now there's a law to, to work with. Well, um, we're going to encounter uh, to some extent less receptive judges than we have before. Uh, and we still need to reform the law in, in many respects. So uh, it's, it ain't over, <laughs> ladies. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah. And you know, with people like Veronica out there, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it, it will happen. And yeah. it's hard. Uh, and there'll be setbacks and heartbreaks. And you'll lie awake in the, in the night, Veronica, and worry. But I already do. <laughs> on balance, you've made uh, you've made a really good choice, and I think that's the thing for for the women that I know when they check in with themselves. Uh, was this a good choice? Is this me? Uh, is the law the way that I will uh, have a um, uh, have an impact uh, that is satisfying and helpful? Karen, thank you so much for your time today and for sharing your story with us, for blazing a path for other women environmental lawyers and just being such an incredible role model. You know, Jeannie, I think what really resonated with me was this idea of conquering imposter syndrome. The idea that I belong was really meaningful to me. And you know, for our listeners, Jeannie and I extensively discussed the narrative of what women in environmental law should look like. And we knew we needed to balance the competing narratives are women not nearly where they need to be in the legal industry with the commodified feminism narrative that the best a woman can be is a woman in a great suit. And I think Karen showed us that walking that tightrope of defining the narrative is tricky. And perhaps it's okay to not define it entirely so we can leave room for each of us to define it in our own right. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Veronica. And I think a great um, narrative takeaway that I got from speaking with Karen is, yes, the glass ceiling is a fact, 
but the narrative that we can't break the glass ceiling, that is fiction. We need to celebrate how far we've come and know that there's still work to be done. We look forward to continuing this conversation with our guests on our next two episodes in the mini-series. A special thanks to Karen Sheldon for virtually chatting with us and for sharing her remarkable story. We'd also like to thank our production team here at the Environmental Law Center, Director Jennifer Rashlow, Associate Director Anne Linehan, Molly McDonough, Mason Overstreet, and our editor, Emily Potts. If you enjoyed this episode of Elevate, please subscribe to Hot House Earth wherever you get your podcasts. There'll be two more episodes coming out soon.